Luke, Luke chapter 7, Luke chapter 7, verse 1 this morning, Luke 7, verse 1. We've also been in the book of Luke for a while. We've jumped around here and there at other messages and looked at the life of David just briefly. We'll get back to that as well. But in Luke chapter 7, verse 1, the Bible says, Now when he had ended all his sayings in the audience of the people, he entered into Capernaum, and a certain centurion's servant who was dear unto him was sick and ready to die. And when he heard of Jesus, he went sent unto him the elders of the Jews, beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they besought him instantly, saying that he was worthy for whom he should do this. For he loveth our nation, and he hath built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with them, and when he was now not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying unto him, Lord, trouble not thyself, for I am not worthy that thou shouldest enter under my roof. Wherefore, neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee, but say in a word, and my servant shall be healed. For I also am a man set under authority, having under the, having under the soldiers, and I say unto one, Go, and he goeth, and to another come, and he cometh, and to my servant do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turned him about, and said unto the people that followed him, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And they that were sent, returning to the house, found the servant whole that had been sick. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now and we just ask that you would work as only you can this morning in our hearts. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Jesus has here in the previous chapter, he has done all of these sayings, he's finished all these sayings, and now he's entered into that of Capernaum. And a certain centurion, if you would, had a servant that was ill and nigh unto death. Uh, when we read here, the Bible gives us an indication of this dealings, if you would, the relationship of that centurion and his servant. So the first thing I want us to look at this morning is we see number one, I called it, uh, I saw somebody this morning, I do alliterations in my messages, so the first point is a warrior. We see a centurion. He is a warrior. He is somebody of uh, extreme authority. He is somebody that has power. He has someone that, he's not a Jew. He is a Gentile. Okay? Uh, I think it's interesting that when we read the Bible and we read especially about Jesus' ministry, a lot of the one-on-one contact that he has with individuals during his ministry is a lot to do with Gentiles. It's super interesting. We, you can do a whole study on how many people Jesus Christ healed that were Gentiles and spoke with them one-on-one that were Gentiles. Uh, so we see here that a centurion servant who was dear unto him, we see that number one, underneath number one, that there was a problem. There was a problem. The problem was this, is that the centurion servant that was dear unto him was sick and ready to die. The word dear here it gives the implication of their relationship was so close that he was considered to be one of the family. I mean, that's what you take in the word dear unto him. The Greek word is intimos, where we get our English word intimate. Okay, so he was very close to this servant. They were close, so close in the relationship that he loved him as one of his own family. And so we find here that he loves him so much that he wants him to be healed because he's nigh unto death. How many of us have had family members that are nigh unto death and all we want them to do is to be healed? 
I mean, that's our cry. That's our plea to the Lord. Lord, heal them. And, and we forget to say, if it be your will. You know, if it be your will, Lord, you heal them. But if not, then let your will be done. Uh, Jesus Christ prayed that same type of prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's there and he's praying and seeking the Lord. And he says, let this cup pass for me, if it be your will. But let your will be done. That's how we should always pray. Lord, let your will be done. No matter what it is, let your will be done. Because it's going to go contrary to our will. It is going to be a clash of the wills that will go always be that way if we want to have our will done and not the Lord's will be done. So we see here that this centurion has a problem. He's about to lose a servant. This servant is ready to die. And back during this time period, servants were valuable especially in the process of time when they have learned the ramifications of the house. They know everything. They know exactly when the master wakes up. They know exactly when he eats. They know exactly how he likes his food done. All these things he likes. He knows how his clothes are to be laid out. All those things. So he's invested a lot of time in the servant. And the servant has invested a lot of time in his master. God has done the same thing for us. He is our master. If you're saved here this morning, he is your master. And he has invested his all in you. Not for you not to do anything for him. He has invested so much of his own power. His, he gave his only begotten son for us. Not that we would just sit down on our backsides and go like, Amen, that's right. Yet we don't do anything about the salvation that he's given to us. He's given it to us that we might in turn invest in the Father. That we invest in the Master. That we get a hold of our Master and say, Lord, what would you have me do? What would you have me do? Because then you, as he invests in us and we invest in him, you know what we then invest in? Others. We invest in others. We invest in each other. We invest our time, our talents, all those different things that God has given to us in this church. Do we not invest our time here? We come here. We spend all these different times together. We invest our talents by playing the piano, singing songs, leading songs, uh, teaching, preaching. Doing the treasury, you say, that's a talent. Hey, somebody's got to do it. <laughs> somebody's got to be good with numbers. I do not want somebody dealing with numbers that failed math. Right? If somebody's pretty good with numbers, then, hey, what do you think about being a treasurer? I don't want somebody that grumbles and complains either when they have to go do it. I want somebody to invest and have a place to serve in this church. But too many times people want to come into a service, they want to come into churches today, and they do not want to invest their time. They don't want to invest their life into what Christ has ordained to be the place for us to serve. They don't want to do it. They just want to come and sit, and that's all they want to do. Although they're supposed to be serving because Christ calls us what? Servants. 
He calls us servants. That means to be a servant, we must serve. And if we don't serve, then what are we doing? Are we a servant or are we a slave? A slave. You know what the difference between a servant and a slave is? A slave does it because he's beaten to do something. A servant is somebody that serves because he wants to be and wants to do it. This servant and this master had a great relationship. And the centurion was so concerned about his servant, he would be willing. He had heard about Jesus. Notice in verse 3, the Bible says, And when he heard of Jesus. You say, well, what did he hear? I don't know, but he heard that Jesus could heal. Apparently had gotten back to his ears and back to his house that Jesus, his fame, if you would, had spread enough. And all of a sudden the centurion gets wind of the fact that, hey, there's someone out there that can help my servant. So we see number two. We saw first the problem. Number two, the plea. In verse 3, he sent unto him the elders of the Jews, beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they besought him instantly, saying that he was worthy for whom he should do this. For he loveth our nation, and he hath built us a synagogue. So apparently then he's heard of Jesus, so he sends out some Jews that are friends of his. I mean, that's, the centurion was basically the warden of a community, the uh, warden of a township, if you would. And he had a connection with the religious of, uh, er, people of the area. And so apparently he had done something for them. We find out that he what? He built them a synagogue. I mean, that's what he did. So the centurion already has a great relationship with the people round about him. He's not one of those ones that did not, uh, he did not go through there, if you would, all pomp and circumstance with his chest poofed out saying, I am a centurion of the Roman Empire, da, 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 da. He didn't do anything like that. He had developed relationships with the people round about him so that when he went to them and said, can you go to this Jesus and ask him, they did. Without any question. How much influence do we have on people that are around us? How much influence do we have? Do we have the ability to go to people and ask favors? How much influence do you have in your community? Can you go to your mayor of your city and be such an influence upon the mayor that he changes something that would have gone into effect if you had not intervened? I know of people, I know of pastors that have that kind of influence. They have talked with governors. They've talked with presidents. They have talked with uh, senators. They've talked with congressmen. They've had that effect and influence on those kinds of individuals because they've made themselves available and invested in those people. So apparently he's had some influence. And when he's heard about Jesus, he says, Go to him and tell them, tell him that my servant needs to be healed. So all he's asking, notice what he's, what, the Bible gives us a really good indication of already the thought process of the centurion. He says there in verse 3, beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant. That is his only plea. He's beseeching Jesus to come and heal his servant. That's all he's doing, is he not? That's it. 
He's not asking for anything more. He just says, come and heal him. The Jews one-up it. Notice what they say. They say here, listen very carefully, when they came to Jesus, the Jews go, they meet with Jesus, they besought him instantly, without hesitation, that he, referring back to centurion, was worthy for whom he should do this. For he loveth our nation, and he hath built us a synagogue. So the Jews come to Jesus, they find him, whatever they needed to do, they needed to get to him right then and there. They couldn't wait. So when they got to him, they instantly said, you know, Jesus, this man is worthy of healing. Well, you know, we're sitting here going, why is he worthy? Well, number one, he loves our nation. And number two, he's built us a synagogue. Whoop-de-doo. So what? Every single one of us sitting in this room today are not worthy of Christ doing anything in us. We have nothing to bring to him except wicked, wretched fools that we are. That's it. That's all we have to bring to him. We have nothing else. I was not worthy of him saving me. I could not come to him and say, well, you know, I'm worthy, Lord, because I'm a pastor's son. I'm a missionary's kid. I've, I've done this. I've done that. I've done all this. I've got degrees. I've got all this. And that's not worthy. That's all my own righteousness. None of us are worthy of the love of Christ. None of us. It doesn't matter all these accomplishments out to the side. Every single one of us have heard the testimony of Pastor Rose. He's a Marine. If anyone's worthy, it's Pastor Rose. Yet he'll say over and again, it's by the grace of God. It's okay if I can use you as an example. None of us are worthy. We're wicked, wretched, foolish, bound for hell. But God in his infinite love for us, and he poured out his mercy and grace upon us, that if we just simply repent and believe, we would be saved. So it doesn't matter here, no matter what these Jews would try to say, even family members. See, this is like a family member praying for another family member. Lord, you know how much I've done for you? Could you just save them? Isn't that the thought process of a lot of Christians today? You know, moms and dads and grandpas and grandmas that are praying for their children and their grandchildren. And they're like, Lord, I've suffered all these things. I've done all these things for you. And I, I go to church all the time. I'm faithful. Can you not just save them? And the Bible says that each one of us must give an account. Each one of us must receive Christ on our own. I must have a personal relationship with him. We do not get to ride on the coattails of those before us. I've heard a lot of people say, and you've heard it too, I was born Christian. You're no more born Christian than I was. No one is born a Christian. No one is born saved. Every single one of us were born apart from God. 
every one of us. And until we came to the place of understanding of our sin condition, that we are lost and bound for hell, and that we needed a Savior to save us from our sins, then and only then, when we cried out to God for salvation and repented, then and only then did a relationship begin with the Lord Jesus Christ and seek the forgiveness of sins. Then and only then. It didn't happen before, but it sure happened after that. After I got saved, man, it was different. A total metamorphosis took place. A transformation took place. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. That's what it's talking about. A metamorphosis, a transformation. I am no longer the caterpillar. The caterpillar doesn't stay a caterpillar, right? He doesn't. Once he's cocooned and he breaks forth as a butterfly. We don't call it a caterpillar butterfly. Do you call it a caterpillar butterfly? Do we call it a cat butter? (laughs) Do we call it a butterfly caterpillar? No, it is a totally different creature. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, If any man be in Christ, if therefore any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away, behold, all things are become new. So if old things are passed away, you know what that word passes? It's, it's not passed. It's P-A-S-S-E-D, passed away. It means it died. Gone. Got to get a hold of that. We have to understand that, that when that takes place, when Christ transforms us, the old life ceases to exist. And we have a new life in Christ. So you see here, these Jews are pumping him up, saying he's worthy for you to heal his servant. He's worthy. He's even built us a synagogue. You know, it's interesting, Jesus probably preached in that synagogue. He's probably preached in that same synagogue. Perhaps that is how this centurion eventually would hear about him being the one that could heal his servant. But this, just because he's worthy, does not merit the healing of the servant. It doesn't merit it. It doesn't mean that Jesus is going to do that. Romans chapter 3. Go with me to Romans chapter 3. We'll look at some verses here. Romans chapter 3 and verse 10. I'm going to read fast, so hold on. Romans chapter 3 and verse 10. The Bible says, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. So therefore, automatically, it's already telling us none of us have any merit. No merit whatsoever. There's none that understandeth. There's none that seeketh after God. Have you ever heard people say, well, I sought God? No, you didn't. The Bible just says you don't seek after God. Well, then how do we come to God? The drawing of the Holy Spirit of God. The Spirit draws us to himself. We do not seek him. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. There it is again. He just says it over and over again. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swept to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That falls underneath the whole heading of those individuals that are, don't have any merit for salvation. They don't have anything to stand on. 
for salvation. Because the Bible already gives us a clear indication of who they are before God. And they don't fear God. Today, people fear God less than they did back then. Even Christians today have an actual problem with fearing God. You, you say, well, I fear God. We reverence Him. But let me tell you something. After multiple discussions with Pastor Rose, we've come to the realization that we need to be scared to death of an almighty God. Why? Because He can kill us. And he would be just in doing so. We need to be fearful of God. We need to be afraid. But because of his son that lives and dwells within us, it kind of dampens it just a little bit for us. But we ought to still be afraid. We ought to still be a little bit afraid of him. You say, well, he loves me and he cares for me. Yes, that is true. But we still need to fear God. Because the thing is, as much as we reverence God in that kind of a fear, we need to be scared because of the simple fact that He will judge us for our sin if we don't get it right with Him as believers. So believers today even have a problem with fearing God the way He also needs to be feared and being totally... The Bible tells us that... I don't know how many times it tells us that He is a terrible and jealous God. I remember hearing, uh, reading an article or hearing an interview uh, of Oprah Winfrey. Oh. You know how she left the Baptist faith? She heard a message of where God was a jealous God. Because she heard that in the preaching, she stopped going to church. Because how can God be jealous? Well, if you'd read the rest of your Bible, you'd find out why he's jealous. And he's jealous over us with a godly jealousy. Amen. It's not the jealousy of envy and wanting that. He is, he is so jealous. The word jealous would imply that of protective of us as his children. That he doesn't want us to stray down the path of going after other gods. So... No merit in this man, servant, being healed. In verse 6, Then Jesus went with them. And when he was now not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying unto him, Lord, trouble not thyself, for I am not worthy that thou shouldest enter under my roof. Wherefore, neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee. Notice, letter C, if you're taking notes, letter C is the position. The position of this centurion. The position. Jesus, when he's good, he starts to go to meet the centurion, and the centurion sends friends out to him to say, Whoa, don't trouble yourself with coming into my house. Notice what he says there. For I am not worthy. Yet the Jews over here said, He's worthy. Yet he himself is saying, I'm not worthy. You're already noticing the position of his heart. His heart is in the right place. The Jew's heart was not in the right place. They loved him. They said, oh, he's worthy. He's, he's worthy of you healing his servant. Yet he's over here saying, don't even come under my roof. I'm not worthy for you because I know who you are. And I'm not worthy. 
it's almost the same plea, if you would, and the same cry that Peter cried out. He says, depart from me, for I am a sinner. You know, when he bowed down before Jesus said, depart from me, for I am a sinner. It's the same kind of thought. I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy for you to be in my presence, and I'm not worthy to be in yours. I'm not worthy. He says, For I also am a man set under authority, having under me soldiers, and saying to one, Go, and he goeth, and to another, Come, and he cometh, and to my servant, Do this, and he doeth it. So he sends friends to convey this. He says, I'm now worthy, where the Jews had said he's worthy in Proverbs chapter 29. Proverbs chapter 29. In verse 23, we read this, A man's pride shall bring him low, but honor shall uphold the humble in spirit. He could have had the same attitude as those Jews had had about him, where he's like, oh, he's worthy. And he could have said, yeah, keep on coming. I'm worthy for you to heal my servant. But his attitude and his heart was in the right place, saying, I am not worthy. You know, sometimes I think we need to come to the place in our own lives where we go before God and say, Lord, I'm not worthy of what you've given me. I'm not worthy to be in the position that I'm in. I'm not, I'm not worthy to have the blessings that you keep blessing me with. Lord, I'm not worthy to have the salvation that you've given to me full and free. I'm not worthy of it. Do you know who I was before you saved me? Yeah, he did. He did. He knows all about us. But aren't you thankful that according to the scriptures, thus saith the Lord that he's forgotten your sins? He's forgotten them. They're cast as far as the east is from the west. They're thrown down into the depths of the steepest ocean, and he will remember them no more. What an awesome God we serve. Amen. That he is willing to go, that's love. That is unconditional love to go beyond that and say, I'm going to forget him. And then he goes to the point of saying, the Bible tells us that he has justified us. So now he takes that board that's got all the markings on it for the Revelation study. He's taking that board that is all marked with black and he goes, you never did it. You never did it. Not in his eyes. He does not look at us and continues to see our sin. Not according to the scriptures, he doesn't. What does he see? The blood of Christ has covered all of my sins. So that's what he sees. He sees, he sees perfection. He does not see imperfect. That's how he views us. But how do we view ourselves? We do not view ourselves as God views us. Multiple times in the book of Ephesians, oh, if I keep going, I'm just going to keep going. And the book of Ephesians, the Bible tells us he already sees us seated in heavenly places. Already. God already sees future. God's way. I'm sorry I'm going over here, but He's way out over here, and we're still way over here, where he wants us to get a vision of that. And if we got a vision of that, we would live differently here. There's a lot awaiting us 
out over there. Far beyond our imagination, far beyond what we can comprehend from scriptures is going to take place, far beyond all that. But if we got a vision of that and how God views us already in eternity with him, we would live differently today. We would live, you know, the word Bible, you've probably heard this before, is an acronym for basic instructions before leaving earth. Because that's what it is. It's basic instructions for the lust and basic instructions for the believer. For both sides. If you don't get saved, you're going to hell. That's the basic instruction. There it is, right there for you. If you're saved and you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ with all your heart, your eternity is heaven. So where do we find ourselves? Where do we find ourselves? Notice back in our text, Jesus. This has got to be hard because of how he responds to that kind of reply, however you want to look at it, where the, the centurion says, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. Verse 9, the Bible says, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned him about and said unto the people. So he's been walking. Those friends come out. He stops and he hears what they have to say about the centurion and says, I'm not worthy for you. to. I, I, I have authority. You know what he's also saying, though? He says, I have authority just like you do, except your authority is greater than mine. I'm not worthy for you to come on my roof. And he hears it. And instead of keep going forward, he stops. And he marvels at the heart of that centurion. And he turns around and he looks at this crowd that has been following him this whole way. He turns around and he says to them, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. Ouch. Because who's the one that's had the faith? The Gentile has. So now he turns around to his own people and says, I've not found it here. Shame on you. Because the Bible tells us over in the book of Romans that the oracles were first delivered to the Jews so they should know better. And they didn't. And they didn't. So verse 9 and 10, letter D, the power. The power. Verse 10 tells us this. And they that were sent, returning to the house, found the servant whole that had been sick. Jesus didn't say, thy faith hath made thee whole. He didn't tell those people, oh, the servant's healed, go. He didn't say any of those things. He says, I'm not seeing so great a faith in, no, not in Israel. And I believe the moment that he said those words, that servant was healed. That very instant. Those people return, and I love the words that are used here. The word is whole. W-H-O-L-E. You know what that means? Nothing left of the sickness. He's completely, totally, completely healed of his infirmity. There was no sign of death upon him. None. Aren't you thankful that when he saves, he does it wholly? And completely. And there's no partial salvation. 
you don't get halfway saved. Okay? Other translations of the Word of God, there are verses in there that they say, and you are becoming saved. What does that mean? Becoming saved? I thought I got it. I thought the moment that I received Christ as my Savior, I got saved. I didn't become saved or am becoming saved. That becoming saved in those newer translations, you know what that's telling us? I got to keep working for it. Not according to the Word of God. The Word of God says, when you do it, you got it. And you can't lose it. Contrary to other religions and their beliefs, you can't lose your salvation. Because once He saves you, He saves you. And He's the one that keeps your salvation according to the Word of God. He keeps your salvation, not you. Because you know why you don't keep it? Because you'll mess it up. You'll mess it up. So the Lord is the one that keeps it. And in the process of keeping your salvation, He keeps you also. He keeps you also. So we've seen a warrior. You see, we're not done? Almost. We've got number two. Two points. We've seen the warrior, and now we're going to see the widow. The widow. Look at verse 11. And it came to pass the day after that he went into a city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him, and much people. Now when he came nigh to the gate of the city, behold, there was a dead man carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and much people of the city was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, and said, Weep not. And he came and touched the buyer, and they that bare him stood still. And he said, Young man, I say unto thee, Arise. And he that was dead sat up and began to speak, and he delivered him to his mother. And there came a fear on all, and they glorified God, saying that a great prophet is risen up among us, and that God hath visited his people. And this rumor of him went forth throughout all Judea and throughout all region round about. And the disciples of John showed him all of these things. We see here, there's a problem. There's a dead son. There's a dead son. A nigh-unto-death servant and a dead son. The problem with the dead son, the Bible also gives the indication of her position. What is her position? She's a widow. So that's even harder because now she has no source of income. None whatsoever. She's now in the place of almost coming to the place of being destitute. Because her husband's dead and now her only son is dead. Possibly the very one that was bringing in the income. Her plea in verse 13 is this. She is weeping. That's her plea. There's no voicing of Jesus heal him, but Jesus knows her heart. He tells her, weep not. Don't weep. Don't cry. There's no reason to cry because he knows the situation. He knows that this is her only son and that she is a widow. He knows those things. He's not surprised by those things. Verse 12 tells us that she is a widow. No husband, destitute and wanting and lacking. She has hit the proverbial rock bottom. You know, when you hit rock bottom, you know the only way to go? Up. That's the only way to go, is up. When you hit rock bottom, the only, way to, the only thing to do is to climb up and go up. Verse 14. 
he touched the buyer, and they that bear him stood still. And he said, Young man, I say unto thee, Arise. So we find here, he says unto the man, he makes a pronouncement to this man. He says, young man. It's almost, if you would, the same pronouncement that he makes there in John chapter 11 when he stands before Lazarus' tomb and they roll back the stone and he says, Lazarus, come forth. He's very particular in who he wants to see arise. He says, young man, arise. You know, it's for all of us. He called each one of us by name when he saved us. Did he not? I mean, as much as I was sitting in a service, I was a preacher when I got saved. I hearkened unto my own preaching. Say, can that happen? God can do anything. But let me tell you something. He didn't speak to my wife. He didn't speak to my members of the church I was pastoring. He didn't do any of those things. He just came straight to him and said, Tim, you're lost. You need to be born again. He didn't call anybody else out. No one. It was me. When he saved you, if you're saved here this morning, he went to you personally. And he spoke to you personally. And then you have the decision to make of heeding it or rejecting that pull of the Holy Spirit. You're the one that makes the decision. So we see here that this young man is risen. He says, Arise. And he that was dead sat up and began to speak. You know, it's just interesting. Why does he say, and and he began to speak? Just for people to know that it just wasn't just some fluke. You know, get up. He sat right up and started talking. And I don't know what he said, but can you imagine the mom's been weeping and crying? And there's one word in there that we missed. The Bible says, and Jesus had compassion. He had compassion. The compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ throughout his entire ministry but also for us today. We sure do need his compassion. We really do. But as we see here, he, the, the mother is weeping and all of a sudden her son sits up. The people that are walking there with the buyer, it's like almost like a funeral procession is taking place and he's just laying up there and they're going to take him to the tomb where he's going to be laid at. And all of a sudden he says, he touches the buyer and he says, young man, arise. And all of a sudden the son sits up and mom's like... And then he starts talking. Come on. If we were standing there with everybody else, I'm, I don't know if those guys holding the buyer must have been like, whoa! <laughs> well, this is over. Are we going to get paid still for holding the buyer? You know? Because a lot of those people got paid for doing all those little bitty tasks. Because now they were not going to go all the, make that long procession down to the tomb or wherever he was going to be laid to rest. It stopped before they got started. Lastly, we see here, he delivered him to his mother. But in verse 16, the Bible says this, And there came a fear on all. This word comes from the Greek word phobos, where we get our word phobia. 
arachnophobia. How many of you have arachnophobia? A good spider's a dead one. I came to the, came to the office yesterday morning about 5.10ish. I walked up to the door, two spiders were hanging down right in the middle. Really big ones too, they're about that big with the legs and all. Took my shoe off. I don't like spiders. I don't know what the phobia is for snakes, but I don't like snakes either. But every single one of us have a phobia. But this is the right kind of phobia. This is the right kind of fear to have. Fear came on all of them. And notice also they say here, and they glorif- because they feared, they glorified God. That is the reaction that takes place when fear falls on somebody. When the fear of God falls on somebody, they will in turn then glorify God. But notice how they glorify him. That a great prophet is risen up among us, and that God hath visited his people. He's better than a great prophet. He is the prophet. The prophet. The Bible tells us that he's prophet, priest, and king. And so when we read here, it's not just some great prophet. It is the great prophet. The great prophet. They glorified him. And a prophet is risen. I like the next ver- next phrase there. It says that God hath visited his people. Oh, for God to visit us. Oh, for God to visit America. To visit our nation once again. And I believe the next time he visits, it's not going to be like that. It's not going to be a nice visit. It's not going to be one. It's going to be a really harsh visit. And it's not going to be the kind of visit that everybody's going to be okay with. You and I are going to be okay with it because we probably won't be here when he visits them. Okay? I'm just telling you. Because America plays no major role in prophecy, and I believe they're just going to either be swallowed up into the other ten-nation coalition, or they're not even going to be existing. That is a visitation I do not want to be here for. But oh, for God to visit us. I want God to visit each one of you personally. How does he visit with you? How do you visit with him? The best way to visit is to get in this book. Read your Bible. Just don't read it. Study it. Dig. Take a little pen and paper and sit outside and write out the notes. So I do that on occasion, but there are most times I'm sitting there with my laptop and I got my Bible and I'm just... I type out all my notes. Some of us are more old school than that. But you want God to visit with you? This is the only way he's going to visit with you. You know how else he can visit with you? In church. In this house. He just doesn't... I think I'll visit that church today. Because he is an omnipresent God, he can be in all of his churches today. And visit with each one of them personally. That's the kind of God we serve. 
But they don't end there. It says, And this rumor of him went forth throughout all Judea and throughout all the region round about. Began to spread like wildfire. Jesus didn't come for fame and fortune or reputation. Did he? The Bible clearly indicates that he did not come to do those things. The Bible even gives us an even more clear indication that he says, I came to minister. I came to minister, and I came to seek and to save that which was lost. That's the sole focus of his ministry. But yet we find here, as he begins to heal these individuals, his fame begins to spread abroad, and people begin to hear, and then all of a sudden it's like he doesn't get any rest. People just start coming from all over the place, and they're coming in, oh, we got to, Jesus heals everybody. Jesus heals, he'll heal you. He'll heal anyone who comes to him. So what do we take away from this? You know, there's a stark contrast between the centurion and the widow. One has money, one has none. One is rich and powerful, the other one is a poor, lowly widow. God is no respecter of persons. None. He'll save the doctor, and he'll save the bum. He'll save anyone who comes to him in faith. Anyone. I mean, we see here, you say, that, wow, I never saw that before. Because it says, and it came to pass the day after. It's like, this happened one day, and then all of a sudden, the next day, this happened. And the two individuals, this lady is what? She's not Gentile. She's a Jew. No respecter of persons. He'll save any nationality, any creed, anyone that will come to him in faith and repentance. Heads bowed, eyes closed.